So we continue this morning in the book of First Thessalonians, and we will be in chapter 5, the final chapter of the book of Thessalonians, uh, and looking at verses 1 to 5 this morning. Uh, and uh, as you turn there, you know, when we think about stories, we all want to know how the story ends, right? It's, and maybe more so a really good story, we want to know how it ends. Bad stories, we typically like, you know, start and say, I don't really care how this ends. Uh, you know, a bad beginning, it, it could have the best ending, but if it's a bad beginning, we probably will never get there, right? But if it has a good or middling uh, beginning, a good middling middle, we'll want to see how it resolves. We want to see uh, how some of those uh, stories wrap up. And indeed, when we think of like TV shows that are canceled prematurely, uh, we sometimes get frustrated by that, right? Like just ha- how do they resolve that? How does that plot line end? But we want to know how the story ends. And as Christians, right, when we think about the world itself, how does the story end? How does the this world end? And we know the unfolding of the end times to, to some degree, right? We, we have the book of Revelation, for instance, or the book of the Apocalypse, uh, which here's a, your fun Fun language fact for you this morning, which, and I always say fun. It's neither fun, but it will be a fact, perhaps. Uh, calypso is to veil. Apocalypso, apocalypse, is to unveil. So um, I'm thinking if you're into the Pirates of the Caribbean movie, you have Calypso, the goddess Calypso, and she is one who veils things. There you go. There's your fun fact. Uh, you can take that. Uh, put it in your pocket for later and chew it over. But at any rate, right, we do have some of the detail, but not really all of the details. And, and as we think of the book of Revelation, for instance, how do we understand those details that we are given is a very, uh, right, controversial subject or at least a discussed and debated subject because, uh, it is written and in some allegory and some symbolism. And so how do we interpret those symbols? Uh, or there are some who just take it as a straight literal, uh, straight literal reading of the text and, uh, that changes things too. So how we interpret, uh, changes things. But what we do know is this, right? This is something that we can hang our hat on. It's, it's a sure thing that there is coming a day of judgment. The day of the Lord is coming. From the very beginning in the scriptures, we, we get this understanding that there is a coming day of the Lord, a coming day of judgment. And what we often want to know, so we know that's at least true, we can hold on to that, but what we often want to know when we know that is when. When is the day of the Lord coming? Uh, When is Christ returning? Indeed, you could turn to the book of Acts chapter 1, and you find that the disciples, as they uh, see the resurrected Jesus, and as Jesus is about to depart and go into heaven, they're very curious and they want to know, Jesus, when is the time that you're going to restore all things? When is the time that you're going to bring to fruition all that which you have spoken about during your, during your life, during your ministry? And Jesus says, it's not for you. It's not for you to know that. So we want to know when... When will God undo the evil in this world and set all things right? 
We're not given the answer, but we are given some hints to that answer, right? Some, some signs that, that will happen, some things that will transpire. But as we turn to our passage today, what I want us to see is that God's children are expectant. God's children are expectant of the day of the Lord. So let's look at our scripture. First Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 1. And this is the word of the Lord. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And this is the word of the Lord. So Paul's continuing his instruction, right? His encouragement to the church in Thessalonica. This church, he really wants to be back with them face to face, but he is hindered from doing so. And so he's doing the next best thing. He is writing instruction and encouragement unto them because he wants them to stand firm. He wants to make sure that they continue to follow faithfully after Christ. This is the measure of his joy in them is their faithfulness unto God. They're standing firm. He wants to be happy in the gospel ministry by seeing them succeed and continue and be faithful. And he's thanked God for their faith. He's thanked God for their love. He's thanked God for their hope in Christ. And he's instructed them in uh, chapter 4. He begins to instruct them in the matter of holiness, the sanctification, which is God's will for them. He's called them to live out brotherly love that God has already taught them about, but he wants to encourage them to continue more in it. And then in the last part of chapter 4, he begins to talk about the end times. He begins to talk about when Christ will return and call his people home. And he writes to not to give them all the details of what that will entail, but he writes to them so that they don't grieve as those without hope. He writes to them saying, remember that whether you're dead or alive at the resurrection, the time of the resurrection, you will be resurrected. You will join Christ in the air. If you're alive, you're not going to precede those who have died. The dead will raise in Christ first, and then uh, we all will join him in the air to be with him Always at the end of verse 17 there. And so we will always be with the Lord. That is our hope in Christ. So we come to our passage today. We find this continuation of the discussion of the end of things with the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And we find that it will be sudden. So that's our first thing that we want to look at this morning. Sudden verses one to three. So he says, now concerning the times and the seasons. And so this is the times and the seasons of the end of days, the end of times, the day of the Lord. The missionaries here say, right, brothers or brothers and sisters. He's writing to the church, right? He says, brothers of these times and seasons of the end of things, you have no need to have anything written to you. And why does he say that? Well, we see him continue right in verse two and say that they're fully aware But what Paul is saying here is that they have a maturity to their faith. They have a maturity to their understanding about the end of time, about the coming judgment that we will all experience. He's written briefly to remind them about the hope of the resurrection, but he 
He says here, I, I don't need to give you new instruction about these things. I really just want to encourage you. I really just want to remind you. And I want to raise some of the issues of what that coming day means for them. What does the day of the Lord mean for the church? This is a letter to a church that understands judgment is coming. Paul does not always have the benefit to writing to such a church that has a mature understanding. We could, for instance, look at 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 2, and we see that Paul says there, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not ready. Right? He chastises the Corinthian church because they are immature in their understanding of the gospel. They're immature. They need milk, not solid food. Right? They, by this time, they should have been weaned from the, the immaturity of milk to the maturity of full understanding and doctrine, but they're not ready for it. And it behooves us to realize that sometimes we need to grow up in our ways and in our understanding. Sometimes we need to have something written to us. And so, he says here, though, of the, of the Thessalonian church, it seems, by the way Paul writes to them, that they have a mature understanding of this matter. They have a, 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 they have a, a knowledge of what is to come. And again, uh, we look at verse 2 and we see, For you yourselves are fully aware. They're fully aware. They have a complete understanding about these things. He says that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verses 43 and 44, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. All right, so Jesus there gives us this example of the thief. And he says, if, if you knew... Right? And I'm saying, like, put yourself in this position. If you know that at 2.35 in the morning that a thief is going to break into your house, you know it. You know it without a doubt. You know, you, you received a Facebook alert. You're going to be broken in tonight at 2.35 a.m. What would you do? I could tell you, you wouldn't be asleep, right? You wouldn't go to bed. Maybe you take a little nap, but you'd set like five alarms like three hours before you had to be up just to make sure you didn't miss that window, right? What would you do? You would be looking out at outside of every entrance to see where they would be breaking into. And if you're really prepared, you'd have, you know, a little uh, weapon action ready, ready to go. Uh, you'd invite them to a gun show. You showing them your guns as they fire off, right? So, so, or, or maybe more, less vigilante, vigilanteism, uh, and more, uh, probably proper. You'd call the police and make sure that somebody was here to deter them at that time. Leave it in the hands of proper authorities. But at any rate, Jesus says, the thief, if, if the master at house had known, he would have stayed awake. He would have made sure he would have, he would have protected his, uh, homestead. But the master of the house doesn't know, right? We don't get alerts ahead of time about thieves breaking in. And so what do we do? 
Well, in one sense, you have to be ready at any point. That's why we have locks on our houses, right? That's why we uh, put uh, security systems in. We want to make sure that we're as prepared as we possibly can be for something that may happen at a time when we don't know it'll happen. And Jesus says, therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. You won't know when it's going to happen. It's just going to happen. And the question is for you, will you be ready for it? This is the reality of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of God's judgment upon this earth and its peoples will be sudden and at an unexpected time. And this should give us pause. Because Christ Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. He is coming and all of his judgments are just and true. He will judge all people. He will cast those who have not confessed him as Lord and Savior into the lake burning with eternal fire. He will call those who have trusted in him to his side to be with him forever. Peter speaks of this day in this way. In 2 Peter 3.10, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, right? Seems familiar. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Whatever you think and say and do, whether it is public or whether it is in private, in your own bedroom, in your own household, will be exposed on the day of judgment. God misses nothing of all that you do. David says it this way in Psalm 139, and this is a little bit longer passage, but I want us to get the sense of who God is. Psalm 139, 1-12. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So one thing that David says there impresses upon us. He says, God knows everything about me. He misses nothing about me. He knows my coming and my going. He knows my very thoughts. Because before I speak a word, before it's on my tongue... God knows it. More than that, there is no place that I can escape to to be out of the presence of God. What David is confessing there in Psalm 139 is that God is omnipresent. 
He's everywhere and he is omniscient. He's all-knowing. God sees all and knows all. And this, this should cause you to tremble. This should fill you with reverential fear. Because there are times in life when we think that we can do something and get away with it. Or we think, uh, this, this, this is sin, I know. I know it's not really proper or right, but I'm not hurting anyone else by doing it. So it's not, it's not that big of a deal. Or nobody else is being impacted by it, so it's not really sin. This is just for me. Or nobody saw me do it. Nobody noticed that I did it. So it's not, it doesn't really impact anything. Understand this, that that is to think little of God's holiness and God's justice, is think little of his, who he is. Because we think so often when we think those thoughts, when we arrange our hearts in such a manner and say, God, it doesn't matter, doesn't really matter what I do. What we are doing is thinking that God is just like us. That he's okay to overlook a little lie here, a little sin there. A little, a little lust here or there. He doesn't really notice or care. But he does. Because God is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. As it says in the book of Isaiah. That is, he's the holiest. He is holy and righteous and he is justice. Jeremiah 9, 23-26, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And he continues, uh, Jeremiah here gives us application. God makes application of what he just says. I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness. <clears throat> Verse 25. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Understand that God's steadfast love, righteousness, and justice demands action on his part against sin, against unholiness. And the days are coming when he will punish all of the wickedness of men whether or not anyone else knows about it doesn't matter. God knows about it. The days are coming when he will punish all of the evil done from an evil and an uncircumcised heart. The days are coming when he will bring to bear his wrath for the sins of mankind. And the question is, are you expecting this? Do you anticipate this day? Or are you like the rest? Verse 3 of our passage. While people are saying there is peace and security. 
Peter writes again in 2 Peter 3, 3-4, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter says there that, right, they, that there are those who look at the course of this world and they conclude God isn't going to return and judge anybody. Because look at the world has continued. Ever since the days of our forefathers, the world has continued. And indeed, think about this. It's been 2,000 years approximately since Christ Jesus came and spoke all these things. It's been about that many years, right, since John wrote the, the book of Revelation. And none of this has transpired, or at least not transpired in full. And so we must conclude God's not coming back. Christ isn't coming back. There isn't judgment coming. So let us just live as we want to live. Let us just do what we want to do because everything goes on as it always has. There is peace and security. People say, right? Don't worry about it. Everything will be fine. God loves you anyways. There have always been prophets or prophets, so-called prophets, air quote prophets, who promise that God is well pleased with all as it is, that he is going to visit more and more blessings upon this earth and its peoples. However, as from old, God will punish the guilty. Jeremiah six, thirteen through 15. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed at all. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So in Jeremiah's day, there were those so-called preachers, so-called prophets that promised and said, Peace, peace. They were pronouncing God's peace upon God's people when in reality God's people were engaged in sin that is an affront to God and that demands God's punishment and wrath. And so Jeremiah says, wrath is coming. And we know by the end of the book of Jeremiah, wrath had come. Jerusalem is carried away. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple gets destroyed. The city walls and gates, uh, the walls are torn down and the gates are burned. Today, there are so-called preachers who promise that all there is is peace. They promise that there is safety and security, that there is no cause for alarm. They say, go on living the way you want to live. Live your truth. They call evil good and good evil. They boast about the blessings and favor of God when really all they are doing is merely storing up for themselves destruction. And not only destruction for themselves, but for all who listen to them. For the one who does not understand the day of the Lord, there is nothing but destruction. And he gives us, Paul gives us in our passage a different metaphor. He says, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. 
In the last verse, right, we have this image of the thief, and now we have kind of the application of it. And here we have this image of a pregnant woman. We have the labor pains of a pregnant woman that come when they're least expected. Right? If, if you are pregnant and you go into labor, when does that happen? You don't know. Right? You can guess. You can say maybe it will be in this window of time. But even right, there are false labor pains. There are, there are contractions that are not real contractions. And here's the, the reality too. What happens when a pregnant woman goes into labor? She has a baby. Now, understanding that there could be some complications there. And understand too that there's not always happy results of a woman going into labor. She could die. The baby could die. They both could die. Or they both could live, live right, and, and uh, grow and be healthy. But one thing is certain, labor pains means birth. What happens when the day of the Lord comes? There will be judgment. As certain as we are that the labor pains of a pregnant woman brings about birth, know this, that the coming of the day of the Lord brings with it judgment. And unlike labor, there are going to be no complications to this. God's going to bring it about. He's omnipotent to do for. He will bring forth his justice to bear in the exact manner he intends. But there will be some sad results from it. Because there will be those upon whom sudden destruction will come. And the implications of what Paul is talking about is this. Who are you? Who are you? If you're in Christ Jesus, then you should know and expect this day of judgment to come, and you should be well equipped to meet it. You should be like those faithful virgins who made sure that they had enough oil for their lamp so that no matter when the bridegroom came, that they would be ready and prepared to meet him. And not like those unfaithful virgins who were unprepared, And when it came time for them to go and get the oils for the lamps and then come back to the party, they were shut out, locked out forever. That's a parable of Jesus, by the way. Go look it up later. But if you're in Christ Jesus, you should know and expect this day of the Lord to come. If you're not in Christ Jesus, if Christ is not your trust, then you need to consider this day Today, you need to consider the weight of what is to come because you will suffer under the divine wrath of God for all eternity. You will bear the full weight of the punishment of your sins. You will stand before God and come to know the truth of his holy justice. And don't think that religion can save you, that religious acts can save you. Do not think that just because you prayed a prayer one time, just because you were dunked in a baptistry, just because you read your Bible, or because you come to church, whether willingly or grudgingly, that these things save you. Because there are many who offer the peace and security, who say safety, safety, through these things. But these cannot satisfy God. They will not. There were some religious Jews who one time came to Jesus and probably with not a little bit of condescension in their voice says in Luke 13, 1 through 5, we have this story. 
There was some present at that very time who told them about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And I'll just pause there and briefly say it is never a great thing to be killed uh, by the government. That's certainly a shameful thing. But especially in the day of sacrifice, to have your blood mingled with the sacrifices was was actually quite an affront. It was a bad thing. It was a, a shameful thing, and it was indeed a, a, a polluting thing, an unclean thing. So it would have the exact opposite of what a sacrifice typically would do, right? A sacrifice cleanses you. Uh, this would be a sacrifice that pollutes you. And so you can imagine these religious Jews come to Jesus and they say, Have you heard about this story? This is really terrible for them. Right, Galileans, who wants to be a Galilean? And Jesus answered them, and he answered them, verse 2, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that these were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Christ's response was not that these people who suffered such deaths were worse off. But rather, he told them that these who are coming to him, who are speaking to him, who are perhaps in condescension, uh, retelling this tale, this story, this news, he told them that right now they are recipients of mercy, but unless they turn from their sin, unless they repent, they're going to suffer far worse off. Don't think that they won't perish. The day of the Lord is coming. And the people who say now, peace, peace, They won't escape. The question is, where are you? The day of the Lord will come sudden. And it will also come with surprise. Let's look at that in verses 4 to 5. Surprise, our second point this morning. And he continues, he says, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. To the Thessalonians, he says of this church, that they are not in darkness. They are not ignorant They are not ignorant of God or his ways. And so the day is not going to surprise them. It's not going to be like the thief coming in the night. They aren't going to be surprised by it because they're going to be up and watching and waiting for it. And we're talking metaphorically, obviously, not literally, because no person could stay up 24 hours a day forever. Right. But the day isn't going to surprise them. And if you are in Christ, this day should not surprise you. You should be expecting it. You should live expectantly. And he continues, verse 5, For you all are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. right? They, the, these are children of the light. And what Paul is using here is this language of light and dark to indicate ignorance and knowledge. And it's different than the way, for instance, that John the Apostle uh, uses light and darkness. And in his context, uh, he uses it in the sense of good and evil. We see that, for instance, in 1 John 1, verses 5 to 7. 
This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So, right, John says in his first letter to walk in the light as God is light is to have the cleansing from our sins. And so John uses light and dark as symbols for good and evil. Here, Paul uses light and dark, and they seem to signify knowledge and ignorance. But the implication of both is the same, right? If we have knowledge of who God is, we will walk in the way God calls us to. If we are ignorant of the way who God is, then we walk, continue to walk in the darkness of ignorance. If we understand that there is coming a day when God will judge all and will punish, don't you think that would motivate us to walk a little differently in life, to live a little differently, to do things differently? Those who walk in the knowledge of Christ, walk in the light and will find forgiveness of their sins on the day of the Lord. So understand this. God is coming to judge. All that you do, all that you have done, and all that you will do will be exposed on that day. Those things that you have thought in in your own mind, those evils that you have borne towards other people's in your own mind, God is going to judge those thoughts. Jesus says that we'll be judged for every careless word we speak. As somebody who speaks a lot, that makes me fearful. Because how often do I just carelessly say things? Everything that we do will be judged. And we should tremble in some sense. But we need not fear that day as those who are outside of Christ through that day. But we watch with it, watch for it with expectancy. Romans eight, fifteen to seventeen tells us, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have to receive receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If God is your father, then you are his child. And if you are his child, then you are his heir, fellow heirs with Christ. This is the good news. You deserve unmitigated wrath for your sin from God. All of the evil that you have thought and said and done deserves nothing less than the holy God's divine judgment. You do not deserve any good thing from his hand. Do you understand that? Do you truly understand that? You deserve not one good thing. Too often in our culture, which is itself an evidence of the, our sinful nature, we think we deserve the good thing. We think that God's good towards us is our right. That we have a mandate that God be good to us. We think we deserve the kindness of God. 
that God's loving disposition towards us is what we are owed. But listen, we deserve no such goodness or kindness. We deserve not love nor happiness. We deserve the wrath of God because we have rebelled against God. We have affronted him. We are traitors to our creator. We have spat in his face. And you may protest, and our culture certainly does protest, that, well, we've not really done that kind of thing. Like, there are some people who are really evil, and we know they're evil, they're wicked, but I'm not them. If you have ever chosen your own way over God's way, that's exactly what you've done. You've said, God... I know you're on the throne. I know you've created me. I know you have every right to tell me what is right to do and what is wrong to do. But I don't care what you say. Get off your throne. I'm on it now. I'm God. I'm king. That's what you do when you sin. You've told the king of kings to submit to you. And understand that. What a foolish, evil thing that is to do. Do you think yourself above his righteous response? What do we do to traitors in our own country? We kill them, right? We kill them. We send them to the gallows. We line up a firing squad and let loose the bullets. You think yourself a righteous revolutionary. No, you're an evil, worthless traitor. But the gospel, Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is good news. Though a rebel you may be, He sent his son to reconcile you and make you a child. So don't persist in the ignorance of darkness, but walk in the marvelous light of Christ Jesus. For you all are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So beloved of God, if you believe in Christ, Wait with eager expectation for the day of the Lord. Wait for it. Pray for it. Look out for it. Be ready for it. Be busy about the things of God until he comes. Be children of the light. Know what is to come. Live smart. Live smart. But for you who sit in the darkness, look unto Jesus Christ. Believe in Christ Jesus and avoid the worst that that day will bring. Without turning to Christ, your expectation on the day of the Lord will be nothing less than the divine frown of your Creator who will look upon your sin, and no matter how big or small it might be, no matter how big or small you may think it may be, 
He will look upon your sin and he will cast you forever from his good pleasure into the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm never dies and the fire never grows cold. And if you think yourself ready for that day, I would encourage you to be sure. Double check yourself. Don't be fooled by what this world says will make you ready. Trust in Jesus alone. He alone can save you. So repent of your sins and trust in Christ and then live as a child of the light, eagerly expecting the day to come. Let us pray. But Father in heaven, how indeed wicked is our sinfulness. How evil are the, the so often how evil and mean are our thoughts and words and deeds. How often our heart is filled with the sinfulness of our flesh. And as your son said, out of the heart comes all the evils that we see committed around us. Father, we pray this morning. We pray that you would press into us the truth of Christ Jesus. Father, that our hearts may be wholly yours, that you would give us a heart of flesh in place of a heart of stone, if that's what, it, if that's what we need this morning. Father, I pray that you would regenerate those who do not trust in you. Father, I pray that you would cause us to, to look upon Christ Jesus this morning with new, fresh eyes and see and behold his beauty and glory. And Father, no matter if we have thought of this often or not, that we would eagerly anticipate the day to come when Christ will return, when Christ will descend and call his people to his side. And Father, we as your people, we, if we believe in Christ, we, we rejoice in that day. We look forward to that day. We don't mourn for it. We eagerly and joyfully want it because we want to see our Savior. We want to be done with this corruptible flesh and put on incorruption. We want to be done with this mortal flesh and put on immortality. We want to sing out, O death, O death, where is your sting? O sin, where is your victory? And so, Father, we, we eagerly expect it and want it. And we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. And Father, we pray further that you would have mercy. Oh, Father, that you would have mercy on those who do not yet believe and trust in Christ. Father, that you would have mercy upon them and even now send the Holy Spirit into their hearts to bring them to new birth. Oh, that you would birth in them trust in Christ so that they too may join us on that day. Oh, Father, May the burden of this truth not stay here in this place, but it may, may it carry us out into this world, this community around us who is dead in their trespasses, who deserve nothing less than your righteous wrath. Oh, Father, may the message of reconciliation be quick on our lips this week to proclaim that which you have done. Oh, Father, we pray these things to you in the name of our blessed Savior and your only begotten Son, Jesus. 
Amen.